Well, how many of you guys have been here the past two weeks? All right. How many of you guys made at least one of one of the past two weeks? All right. So the majority of are around here have been around a little bit. Last week, uh, Billy came and shared on the. Uh, well, so okay, so two weeks ago, I shared on uh, the subject of the Antichrist, and we broke down, went, went through Daniel chapter seven, and uh, just kind of gave uh, some thoughts about that. And then last week, Billy shared about the the timing issues related to the rapture uh, and the resurrection of the dead. Um, and shared that the, the biblical view and the understanding that's been given throughout history, <clears throat> really from the earliest church fathers, the first 300 years of Christianity, and then actually the first 1,800 years, really, about the timing of the rapture, that it would be a post-tribulational rapture um, and uh, that would take place just prior to the millennial reign of Christ. And so the idea is the church would be here until the second coming of Christ at the end of the age, and we would actually be under the persecution and the, and the, the reign of the Antichrist, um, but standing with, with power and resisting, and many of us would be martyred, but the Lord would see to its end at the end of the tribulation. So that was kind of his message last week and, and broke down the verses that are really clear about that. And so <clears throat> this week, I want to uh, kind of book in a little bit of that. And, and as he talked about last week, the issue of the rapture, the timing of the rapture, I want to talk about the other aspect of the second coming. So when we, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, there's really a couple things that are happening here. There's, they're, that's, they're all like different um, things that are taking place, but they're all part of the same event. Um, and so you have the, what we call the, the, there's the second coming, okay? That's what Jesus is doing, okay? He's doing that part. We don't really get to say it. He, he's coming, okay? Second time, boom. All right. Then you have the resurrection, okay? That's what everybody's great you know, dead grandparents that love Jesus. That's what they're doing at that time. Or if you kick the bucket between now and then, that's what you'll be doing. You'll be getting out of the grave. If you're still around and you happen to make it to the end and whatever, uh, and then you'll be part of the rapture. You'll be caught up. But then the question is, okay, okay, okay. So we're with the Lord. We're in the air, whatever. We're with him. What's next? So I want to talk about the what's next. Um, Now, there's a popular, I mean, even through our culture, we all hear the term Armageddon. And Honestly, even unbelievers, I mean, you talk to them, like, they, they talk about Armageddon. And to them, that just means, like, a giant asteroid is going to hit the earth or something, some point, or global, you know, uh, climate change is going to take us all out. And it's kind of a term that's just used to mean end of the world. But the Bible actually doesn't really, it's, it's not, it doesn't really talk about that. There is no such thing as the end of the world. There is, the Bible talks about the end of the age, but then it talks about the age to come. See, the, the, the understanding of the, the, the ancient Jews and then the early Christians was that, the, that God has set uh, this earth up in a way that it would be linear ages. Linear ages. You have this age, and there would be a transition, and then it would start a new order, a new age that would take place. And so that's how Jesus used it. You know, the disciples said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, right? <clears throat> and so, uh, and then Jesus often talked about eternal life, and he made it synonymous with obtaining to the age to come. So um, one thing, I, you know, many of us kind of, at least I, I used to have this idea. I kind of thought, okay, when Jesus comes back, I didn't, I didn't know. I just thought maybe, maybe he's going to be like, because, you know, the Bible says that, that, that uh, every eye is going to see him. I was like, how is that going to work, you know? Was he going to be like 8 million feet tall? You know, he lands and he's just like evil, be gone. Everything starts blowing up, you know? I was like, how, how is, I mean, the earth is a, is a, is a you know, is a sphere, Unless you're a flat earther. But anyway, you know, it's a sphere. And then how do you, so how do you, if, he lives, if he's over here, how is everybody going to see him over here? You know, how, how does every eye see him when he comes? You know, what is CNN there? Like, we're live from the second coming of Christ right now. You know what I mean? How does, 
How does that, probably, they're probably not going to be there. If you read the, 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 the writings of the prophets of what's taking place by the end of the Great Tribulation, we probably don't have Fox News and CNN by then. I mean, it's really, like Isaiah 42 talks about, it says that the, the whole earth, Isaiah 24 says the whole earth, the surface is distorted by this time. It talks about, it says that, that God's going to make rivers into coastlands. Well, that's something you can read really quickly, but if you think about that, let's just, okay, imagine you have the Mississippi River, and all of a sudden it becomes a coastland. Well, how does that happen? That's because half of America fell into the ocean. Okay, probably you're not going to be there with Fox News at the very end. I mean, it's just it, the, the idea that technologies are going to be operating at the same way they are now um, is probably not realistic. Um, but every eye is going to see them. How does this take place? And so is he 8 million feet tall? Well, no. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, remember when, when, uh, when Jesus left the earth and, and all, the, all the disciples were standing around gazing and the, and the angel said, why do you men stand here gazing? Which is kind of like, what do you think? He just flew, you know, whatever. But, um, and they go, he goes, this same Jesus whom you've seen go into heaven will also come back in the same manner. In other words, when, and, and the prophets all saw this. They saw a man in the ages to come that would be ruling from Jerusalem, a human. In other words, if he was six foot when he left, he'll be six foot when he comes back. If he was Jewish when he left, he'll be Jewish when he comes back. He's not coming back eight million feet tall. And the other thing is this, is that Natural processes are not going to suspend at the second coming of Christ. It's not all of a sudden like time just stops and we enter some sort of weird, but no, no, the ages continue, the linear ages continue. In fact, Daniel actually talked about this. He actually talked about specific days that would take place. The Bible is very clear that the Lord will return on day 1260 after what's called the abomination of desolation. You've never heard of that? Don't worry about it. Come to the seminar. I'll, we'll be teaching on that on the 7th. But there'll be, there'll be 1260 days after this certain event. And then he said from that, then after that, there'll be an additional 30 days that God's going to be doing something. In other words, the Lord will return on day 1260, and then he's going to actually be doing some things for the next 30 days until day 1290. And actually he talks about this very clearly in the Bible. There's a month period after the second coming when the Lord's doing things on the earth. We when we believe it's actually talking about his, uh, uh, his, 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 um, his campaign all the way up to Armageddon. Now, there's several things the Bible says he's going to do. There's going to be what we call it a, a, an aerial campaign or a, 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 a passage across the skies, across the heavens, where the Bible says every eye is going to see him. In other words, he's literally going to be moving across the earth. In other words, his appearing um, on the earth, he'll actually be going. And it's not just him by himself. He's coming with all the holy angels. Uh, you know, because it's not like, you know, if it was just one six-foot dude, you know, flying in the air, it'd be hard for everybody to tell what that is, right? You're like, I think that's Jesus. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's probably not what's going on, but if he's coming back with all the holy angels, every saint that's ever lived in the history of humanity, this is a massive procession that's going to be going across the sky, and he's going to be making rounds around the earth. And then he's gonna, there's going to be another part of the, the, uh, the, the procession, which is an actual land march. He's going to land somewhere on the earth, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and he's going to actually march across the earth. And what is he going to do? The, the prophets talked about this. He talked about him coming, and he's going to be releasing captives out of prisons. There's going to be prisoners, Jewish, specifically Jewish prisoners, that will have been uh, uh, locked up under the hand of the Antichrist. Isaiah talks about this in several places, uh, where the Lord's literally going to go and open prison doors and lead them out at his second coming and bring them with him to the Armageddon campaign. And then after that, there is the actual battle that takes place. After the battle of the Antichrist, the Bible says him and his, the false prophet are, are cast alive into the lake of fire. And then there's an actual procession into Jerusalem, the Bible talks about, where he goes in and he tears down this idol called the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem. He tears it down and he cleanses the temple 
and they begin to prepare for uh, what we call the millennial reign of Christ. So there's not, time doesn't just suspend. Natural processes don't necessarily suspend. Uh, There's uh, obviously the break-in of the supernatural with God coming to the earth, but there's still going to be days and months and years. There's still going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, cycles of the moon and the sun and the stars. All those ideas are going to take place. The earth will still be the earth. There will be a renewal of the earth. There will be, there will be a, a newness that will take place. There will be new, new geographies that will happen during this time because of the, the calamities that took place prior to the second coming of Christ. The Lord is going to renew those things. But there is a, uh, it actually talks about like in, in, in Ezekiel that the Lord is going to bring uh, rivers back to life that were dead. Like the Dead Sea will come back to life. The actual rivers that, that, that come forth from Jerusalem will touch it. And the men, it actually says in Ezekiel, it says that the fishermen will again uh, cast their nets even in the Dead Sea in a place that has no, no living um, animal in it or no living fish in it to this day. <clears throat> so I want to read a couple passages. We'll talk a little bit about Armageddon. Um, so where we get the actual uh, phrase Armageddon is from Revelation chapter 16. So I want to put that up there on the screen if we, if we can. Hopefully, I think two weeks ago we didn't have any verses up there. So maybe this week's, ah, oh, yeah. All right. So this is where we get the, the phrase Armageddon from that everybody talks about. This comes from Revelation 16. Let's just look through this. He says, then the sixth angel, this is uh, the sixth angel, which is the, the sixth angel, the bowl of wrath. He says, poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates. That's an actual river in this located near Iraq. He says, and its waters dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, the mouth of the beast, that's talking about the Antichrist, and the mouth of the false prophet, that's the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Okay, <clears throat> he says, and then Jesus inter, like, interjects right here. There's a, it's, it's like what we call a beatitude in Revelation. He, he, he jumps in and he gives us a, a warning. He says, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he uh, walk naked and see his shame. And then the writer picks back up and he says, and they gathered them, going back to what he said when the nations are gathered, and they gathered them together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Okay. Now, I don't want to break down all of this, but basically the, the essence of it is, uh, he, says, he says, I watched, he goes, he goes and, I, and I saw these demons coming out of these three messengers, Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, and they're convincing uh, political leaders and military leaders across the world to get their armies together and to make it to this gathering place called Armageddon um, for a great battle. And he, they are being convinced, and they begin to come. And when he sees the whole group of them, they're, they're, they're coming from all over the world, but there's a group of them that are, that are, that are east of the Euphrates River, you know, China, whatever you want to call it, uh, Iran, different nations that are to the east, that are marching their, 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 their militaries. But because of the destruction of the infrastructure, roads, all those kind of things that are down, they have to cross the Euphrates River, and they can't get across it. And so the, the, there's a, a, uh, a demonic sign, I'll say it that way, or, or a sign that takes place to them as they watch the Euphrates River dry up before them. It goes kind of, almost kind of like the, the Red Sea parting kind of thing. And it gives them courage to think, this battle we can win. In other words, when they see the sign take place, they think it's a sign that they're going to be victorious. And they actually begin to cross easily to make it to Israel for the great battle. And it deceives them. And they're going to come, and they're going to gather to a place called Armageddon. Now, now that, that phrase literally means hill of Megiddo. Now, in Israel, how many of you guys in here have ever been to Israel? 
two of you. Good. All right. <clears throat> did you go? To, did, you, did y'all see Megiddo? All right. Yes. So you'll, no, it's an actual place. Okay, and it's north, just north of, of Jerusalem, and it's a large plain field out there. Um, it's actually where many wars, biblical wars, had taken place. Uh, where uh, anyway, I, I won't go into all the deals. That basically, it's this large landmass there north of Israel, where the, the Lord said, this is where the nations are going to gather for the battle. Now, notice it doesn't say this is necessarily where the battle takes place. That doesn't mean there's not any battle there. You see, because most of us think Armageddon equals the last battle. But what it literally just says is this is the staging grounds for the last battle. Now, this is the area where the nations are gathered for the battle. But if you actually read the writing of the prophets, like Joel and the different ones, they actually indicate that the, the, the most severe war that takes place at the end of the age is actually in and around Jerusalem, just a little bit south. And, and Isaiah even brings it even down further south to the southeast, down to modern-day Jordan, all the way from modern-day Jordan, which was ancient Basra, all the way up into Jerusalem, about a 200-mile stretch. And so they're going to be gathered there, but the great battle will take place a little bit uh, further south. That's actually where the passage we get, this whole idea of there's going to be this great Armageddon battle. Now, let me just think about this for a second. This is, this is an insane idea. Why, why is it an insane idea? Because who are they going to war against? Anybody? Jesus. Think about it. That's actually what Revelation 17 says. It says that the beast and the ten horns will gather to make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them. Okay, who's Jesus coming to war with? Who's his, who's, his, who's his posse? Angels. Think about this. And resurrected saints. Okay. Jesus, so, so humans and the nations are gathering for war to go to war against Jesus who cannot die. <laughs> against all the angels who cannot die. And against all the resurrected saints that already died and now they cannot die. This is the most crazy lopsided battle in the history of history. It's 100% casualty to zero. This is why, this is why the, the writer of Psalms 2 says the nations are raging and plotting a vain thing. They're gathering together against the Lord. It's, it's actually in context. Psalms 2 is talking about the battle of Armageddon when the nations gather against the Lord at the very end of the age. And he goes, they're insane. He goes, they're raging. He goes, the Father is going to sit on his throne and laugh. I grew up always thinking that that was a passage everybody used to show that God has a sense of humor. That's not the kind of laugh you want God laughing about. That's not like, oh, isn't he jolly? No, no, that's, that's that weird, like, like, chuckle that you're like, oh, 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 That's that kind of laugh where you're like, you don't want anybody laughing at you like that. You know what I'm saying? And it's, that's what he's going to be doing because he's looking at the rage of the nations that are raging against him. He is so confident. He goes, he goes, look, you guys, I have set my king on his holy. He is going to be king. He goes, he goes, now kiss the son, lest he be angry. You perish in his way. And so the nations are going to gather to war against Jesus. This talks about the, 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 uh, the uh, insanity of where... where where we're watching the nations right now, like the, the, all the drama and the political stuff and all the, every, everyone's getting upset and angered and, and bitter and there's all this, uh, 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 you know, hatred that's beginning to rise in people's hearts and, um, you know, offense. This is all, it's, it's, it's because if you understand where, this, where it's going to end, you can see the pieces are just getting put in place right now. 
I mean, all this is doing, it's just all the shiftings and the movings and the different governments and the different systems, it's all moving towards this, this period. That, in other words, the, the, the small amount of hatred that we're having right now towards Jesus, people have towards Jesus and Christianity, and they're angry because we don't support, say, gay marriage, or we're against transgender rights, or we're, all the different things, those things that are making them rage right now, where they're able, if you go on Facebook and say anything, you are going to get plummeted, you know what I'm talking about? Like, that's just so light. That's just people hurting your feelings. But this thing's going to get more and more. It's going to get laws bit behind it. It's going to get people thrown in prison. This is already happening in other countries. It's just a matter of time it'll happen here. And we're going to see this begin to take place over and over because it's going to end up eventually several steps down the road where the nations are willing to go to war against, uh, against this man. That's how far it's going to go into the delusion. So we see, we see, uh, we see you know, this thing play out, and we get to Revelation 19, and this is at the, the last battle <clears throat> where Jesus comes back. Revelation 19, verse 11, John says this, he says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew but himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Let me just pause real quick. Everything, in the, I mean, not everything, but in the book of Revelation, so much of what John is, is piecing together is he's pulling from, I, from passages from the Old Testament. And, and when, he, when he says a phrase in the, in, in, in the book of Revelation, it's meant that we would have understanding of what that passage meant in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? In other words, he's fulfilling what the prophet said there, and he's just using maybe a, a tagline of that passage in the New Testament. So in this passage, he says, and he says that his, uh, his robe is dipped in blood. You know, he's, going, he's, got, he's this warrior dipped in blood. Well, that's directly out of Isaiah 63, where the prophet Isaiah says, who is this one coming up from Basra, which is modern-day Jordan, this one marching up from Basra? He goes, it looks as though he's, his garments, he goes, looks like he's been one who's been treading out the wine press. And he says he's been, he's been treading the wine press. He goes, and he goes, and he's stained all of his robes. And he looks at it, and he says, and it's not wine, it's not... Um, it's not wine that he's been pressing. It's actually the nations. He says, he says I've, I've, I've crushed the nations. And he goes, and I've splattered their blood all over my, my garments. That's, what, that's actually what Isaiah says. He sees, sees the Messiah at the end of the age actually coming against those nations that are raging. And he actually identifies that it's like a, a giant wine press where the nations are going to be gathered into one location for the Lord to come back and actually tr uh, uh, stomp out those nations. As the book of Zephaniah, he says, it says the Lord is, is going to have a great, uh, uh, a great sacrifice, like a banquet, or, or, I mean, a great meal. He says, and he's inviting his guest. The problem is, this is the guest list where the guests are also the meal. It's not the guest list you want to be invited to. But um, we'll keep going. He says, he says, verse 13, and he was clothed with a, 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 with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. His, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Now, the armies of heaven, I mean, we're, we're talking about, there's probably two groups where he's talking about here. He's probably talking about all the angels, but he's also talking about the saints. Zechariah 14 talks about, says the Lord, when he comes on that day, he'll come and all the saints with him. So, why is this important to you? Because this is, if you, how many of you guys love Jesus? This is your future. You're going to be here. 
So it's good to know it. Now, and this is, we're going to be in, like in line, and you're going to be sitting next to me going like, I remember talking about this. This is the part where he splits the Mount of Olives. Zachariah said so. Watch this. Watch this. There it goes. The armies in heaven, us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, that could mean literally, but it could mean, because the Bible is using some of the, 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 in other words, it doesn't necessarily mean when Jesus like opens his mouth, it's like, you know, the sword comes out. It literally can just mean when he speaks, the judgments take place. Does that make sense? Of course, he didn't ask me. We may get there and go, no, it's, there it is. Um, And he says, uh, and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. It's the same thing I told you. He's bringing them all nations together, and he's going to tread them out. <clears throat> and he has a robe, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the, of our, of, of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free, slave, uh, both small and great. That's pretty interesting. So and we actually see this. The Bible actually talks about it. It says that after the battle takes place, in Ezekiel chapter 39, it, detail, it gives a little more detail about this battle. And it says that after the battle, that the Lord actually calls all the birds probably in the whole geographical region there, to actually come and help with the cleanup because there's so many dead bodies. In fact, Ezekiel 39 actually says that there's so many people at this battle, this last battle, that go to war against Jesus and all of his angels and all the saints, that after the battle, it takes seven months after the battle to clean up all the bodies that are around Jerusalem. So, so think about it. We're talking about seven months into the millennial reign of Christ, they're going to still be cleaning up uh, bodies. He says they take them and they have to go bury them in, in a land. They call it uh, the Valley of Hamon Gog, and they, they put all the bodies. And said there's so many bodies that it, stra- it, it obstructs any travelers that want to come from the east. They have to actually go around the entire valley to get to Jerusalem. It says after that, it says in Ezekiel 39, it says that, that there will be so much equipment that will have be left on the battlefield that needs to be cleaned up after the time that they will be taking that equipment and burning it for seven years. Verse 19, he says, <clears throat> says, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, that's Jesus, and against his armies, that's us and the, and the, and the, uh, the angels. It says, then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of, of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Very pleasant. All right. This is where this thing is going, God. This is a different picture. Like we have, you know, most of us have this picture of Jesus and he's 
you know, coming back and he's like on a big poofy white cloud with a big smile. This is the warrior Jesus. This is actually what he's doing. He's coming back for a military campaign. He's going to, he's going to remove the wicked from the land. This is what he's doing. He's going to remove all those that took the mark of the beast and he's going to establish his kingdom. So the prophets, they, they oftentimes, uh, so Revelation, where he's kind of giving you the big pictures, the prophets, the, the writings of the prophets, they were all talking about the same events, but they would, they would talk about it from a little different angle. It, it's kind of like they were all looking at a diamond, you know, but they were looking at it all from a different angle, and they would see different facets and different colors, and they would write about it, and they would see different ideas that were going to take place. And, uh, and you see this, I mean, Isaiah talks about the same day, and Zechariah and all the different ones, uh, Habakkuk 3 uh, details out this same, this same time period where the Lord is going to, to war against the nations. He talks about his landmarks across the, uh, across the earth. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, when, we, when we read the prophets, you're gonna, you'll be able to, you'll be able to, you can see how, how there's all these different features. When you put it together, then the story begins to kind of start making sense in, in a greater way. So one of these prophets I want to look at really in detail is the prophet Zechariah, because I think he gives such a, uh, a detailed account of some of the events that are going to take place at the Battle of Armageddon when the Lord finally establishes his kingdom. So if we can look at it, it's in Zechariah chapter 14. And we're going to look at starting verse 1. Now, just a quick background on Zechariah. So Zechariah, uh, really starting in chapter 12 through 14, kind of starts the details of this, of this final battle account. Zechariah chapter 1 says the burden of the Lord against Jerusalem, and he says that I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to gather all nations against Jerusalem for battle. Oh, just want to pause on that, that idea for a second. Um, so er, earlier we read in Revelation 16, it says that, that the Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist are going to gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem, correct? But the other passages you'll read in the Bible, and Zechariah 12 says it, it says that the Lord is the one who's going to gather all the nations together for battle. So which one is it? The answer is yes. They're both doing it. They're actually doing it for different purposes. Satan is actually gathering the nations to actually go to war because he thinks he can win, which is complete insanity. But God is allowing the, the, whole, the whole thing to take place because he's trying to bring them all into the wine press together. Zechariah 14, so, so Zechariah 12, you see the, the nations are going get, get, to gather in Jerusalem. It says, in Zechariah 12, it says that when this takes place, there's going to be a remnant of Jewish survivors that are still in the city. And it says that the Lord is going, to, it says that, that, that the Spirit of God will come on them, uh, like, kind of like the Spirit that was on David, and they'll begin to fight. There's a few that are left that haven't yet died under the hand of the Antichrist in the city, and they begin to fight at Jerusalem. And there's an epic battle begins to take place, and the Lord is marching. And what we find is it seems like that by the end of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist, the Bible, we know he, in 2 Thessalonians, says that he's going to set up in, in the temple of God and showing himself that he is God. So he's got some sort of headquarters there in Jerusalem. And then he, he takes his militaries, and he kind of encompasses around Jerusalem as a way to, like, fortify for, uh, against the coming king that's coming. And the Lord begins to actually break down those barriers and actually begins to march across the land into Jerusalem. And so Zechariah 14 details the account of what happens when the Lord actually gets to Jerusalem and what takes place. And kind of, it starts off a little bit of an overview, uh, and, and then it kind of, and then it details, it, it kind of hones in specifically what takes place in Jerusalem. So in Zechariah 14, 1, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, 
and your spoil will be divided in your midst. <clears throat> For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. And so he's given kind of the broad details of what takes place. He says, the city shall be taken. In other words, Jerusalem will be taken over. He goes, the houses will be rifled and the women will be ravished or, or raped. In other words, there's going to be lots of negative things taking place up, in, up until this point in Jerusalem. He says, um, half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So there's a small number of people that won't, be, that won't die, that will still be in the city. And it says, verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he, does, as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall uh, move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, the king of, uh, of Judah. So let me pause real quick. What did he just say? He says that, 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 that Israel is going, to be, have, it's going to be pushed up, you know, have their backs to the walls, the idea. They're almost dead. The city's been taken over. Most of the city's gone into captivity. There's a few that, that remain. They're the ones that have been fighting, you know, Spirit of David's on them. And it says that all of a sudden, it says that, that the Lord is going to Go forth and fight against Jerusalem. Uh, at Jerusalem is going to go and fight against those nations that have come against Jerusalem, as he does on the day of battle. But when? He says, it'll be on the day when his feet stand on the Mount of Olives. Some people go, well, how do we know that's not talking about the first coming? Well, did the Mount of Olives split in two? Has anybody seen the Mount of Olives lately? Is it still there? Still one piece? Probably hadn't happened yet then. All right. He says, he says that on that day the Lord stands on the Mount of Olives. He says the whole mountain is going to split in two. And then the prophet gives this, this, this explanation. He says, then you, talking about the, those, those, those Jews that are still there, that are backs against the wall, are going to flee through the new mountain valley to escape the destruction of the Antichrist. In fact, when he says it, he has, he has, to, go, he has to say it again. He goes, yes, you shall flee. Like they were kind of going like, What's going to happen? Yes, you're going to flee. And he says, you're going to flee through it to escape. You know what this is? This is exactly what he did the first exodus. But this time the Lord's going to do, second, it's the second coming. He's going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to do you one up. And he goes, last time we did it with water. This time we're going to do it with a mountain. He's going to split a mountain and they're going to flee through that mountain. Now, I just, I don't know. Like this, this is bad to the bone to me. Okay, so let me back up for a second. So Jesus, uh, well, let me just talk, okay. Where's Jesus going to come back? Where, where's, he, where's he land in the, the, you know, the Jesus ship? You know, not, that's not really the right word. But <clears throat> he, said, he said the same way you saw him go, he's going to come back, come back to the earth. So there's a lot of scholars that believe that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. And I, and I, I actually, I, I understand that because of this verse. Um, the interesting thing, there's actually a lot of verses in the, in the Bible, in, in uh, Deuteronomy, and I think 32 talks about this, in the Psalms, I believe around 68, uh, Habakkuk 3, different ones actually talk about this eschatological, this end time prophecies, where it talks about the Lord coming from the Mount Sinai regions. Now, when, it's, it's a really interesting prophecy, he's coming with all these saints, and in context, he's talking about the end of the age. And so it seems like there's this, eschatal, this end, it says in Isaiah 19, it says the Lord will come on a swift cloud and then he'll go into Egypt. 
which is where a lot of people, you know, potentially think the Sinai region was. But either way, so, so, so it seems like the Lord is actually going to land on the earth, and then we see this, these, these, this prophetic passage about the Lord marching with all the, all the saints, all the angels, across the earth, and then there, there's a stretch. I wish I had a map. I could show you this. But from the south of Jerusalem all the way up, it, it literally, if you look at it, it's the exact, almost the exact same path that Moses took during his exodus. So you, ever heard, you guys ever heard the phrase that Jesus is the greater Moses? You know, uh, Jesus, I mean, it was Moses, he actually said, he said, the Lord one day is going to raise up to you a prophet like me. And so the, when the, I guess the question is like, in what ways is Jesus like Moses? Well, one of the ways he's going to literally do a second exodus. And he's going to bring these Jewish captives out with all the saints. And he's going to bring them out of captivity and bring them to the promised land. And, and we see that, uh, that, that the same route he takes, pla- takes place, and he actually comes up through southern uh, Edom with modern-day Jordan into and then over west to Jerusalem, and then he ascends up onto the Mount of Olives. Now, that entire path on the way up there, it is a military campaign. It is warfare the entire way, which is really interesting because um, uh, it was, uh, who was it? Um, it was Moses on his first Exodus after, after, after chapter 19 of Exodus where they had the, uh, the, the, the marriage, you know, deal uh, with the Lord came down the mountain and they all pledged, you know, to be, that he'd be their God. And that, that whole thing took place and the Ten Commandments were given. And then it, shortly after that, that they get to the land of Edom, if you guys remember this, and the king of Edom comes out and says, you guys cannot pass through the land. He said, we're not going to allow you to pass. And they get to the, the Moab, same thing. And they say, you have to walk around. And they had to take the long journey to get around to the promised land. And it said it greatly discouraged the hearts of the children of Israel, so much so that they were, um, it said they began to complain against the Lord. And that's actually where the complaining started. They began to actually say it was better for us back in Egypt. That whole thing took place once the kings of uh, Moab, Edom, and Ammon said, you can't pass through the land, it made them walk all the way around. And so the Lord tells Moses, he says, listen, he goes, when you eventually become a strong nation, he goes, when, every, when everything's in place, I want you to go back and I want you to wipe out every single one of them for what they, for, for what they did. Every one of them, you're to take them out. He goes, for, because they did greatly discourage the hearts of the children of Israel. They turn my bride back from me is, is the idea. He goes, and he goes, he goes, he goes, so you take them all out. So that's why years later when they finally get a kingdom and the first king of Israel, Saul, is raised, is raised up. And, the, uh, and Samuel comes to him and says, you're to go and you're to actually kill every one of the, the remnant of that people, the Malachites that were there. He says, you're to kill every one of them. He goes, and you're to take them out. And, 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 and what happens? We know that, that Saul doesn't obey the command of the Lord. And the Lord replaces him and says, he says, he says, he says the kingdom's now been stripped from you. Oftentimes, I remember I used to read that, that passage. I was like, dang, Lord, that's kind of harsh. Like he did 99.99999% of what you asked him to do. Didn't he? Killed everybody but the king. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously, it seems like he probably left somebody else alive because I think one of them, an Aggieite, shows up, you know, a couple generations later. But because um, the king probably wasn't pregnant. Anyway, so anyway, so but he didn't he didn't do it all. But I was like, he did most of it. And he, got, he, gets, he gets displaced. Well, why is that? Because he did not do the command that God gave to Moses. It was actually a command. And actually, in the past, he said, you're to do this because of what I promised Moses. And the first king of Israel did not do it. In fact, that promise given to Moses has never taken place. That's why when we read Isaiah 63, it says, Who is this one coming up from Edom, from Basra, with bloodstained garments? It's the last king of Israel who's fulfilling the very promise that was given to Moses. And he's going to march, and then he's going to take his, take his path up into Jerusalem and ascend the Mount of Olives. 
Uh, and and, and it, it just, I can't imagine what this is going to be like because the nations will have gathered all around the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The nations are gathered, the hordes. It's like, think of the Lord of the Rings, you know, in that last battle when all, the, all the, the hordes of the nations are gathered there and there's a remnant of the Jews that are about to be put to death backed up against the Mount of Olives and, and they don't even know him. They don't even know, know Jesus. They, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're unbelieving Jews, but they, all of a sudden this, it's dark it's the, it's the, the, because the, the lights go out is what the Bible talks about. And then all of a sudden this bright light of the Lord and all the saints appears over the Mount of Olives, and they look up, and they see this, this great majestic being on top of the, they, they don't know what's going on, all of a sudden the Mount of Olives. But it's, it, it's not just the Mount of Olives, because the Bible says in Ezekiel, it says the Lord gives off a shout, and this shout literally causes, it says every uh, animal, every bird, even the fish of the sea begin to shake at an earthquake. It's the greatest earthquake that has ever happened in the history of the planet. It's a worldwide earthquake. Right now you have an earthquake, and you might feel it for a couple states away, a couple cities away, but this will be an earthquake where it says the entire, it actually says in Ezekiel 38, it says that every wall will fall to the ground. That means every man-made structure goes crashing to the ground. This is what causes the Mount of Olives to be split in two. It says the mountains begin to fall. I mean, I mean, all the steep cliffs begin to crash to the earth. This is part of the changing of the geography that takes place at the end of, the, end of, the, of this age. And the Mount of Olives splits, and these people that are about to die, they literally, they go taking off and running through the new canal. And then it says in Ezekiel 38, it says that on that day, when the nations gather around Jerusalem, the Lord says, he says, my fury will be seen in my face. And he looks out into the nations, and he goes out and says to make war with them. In fact, and this is what he's talking about, he said he, said he will go out and fight with them as he does on the day of battle. And we're going to look at some of the things that happens when this takes place. Ezekiel 38 I think it's verse 20, it says that on the Antichrist and on his nations, those that are gathered with him, he said, I will rain down on them. He says, flooding rain, great hailstones, and fire and brimstone. And then I'll kill them by the sword and by plagues. So there's a multi-front battle taking place. They all got bayonets or swords, whatever it is they're using at the end of the age, I'm sure. Actually, it says they're taking, it's the, 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 um, the military uh, uh, supplies, guns, all this kind of, they're so depleted that the, the, the prophet Joel says they had to go get farming equipment and beat it into a sword and come and fight. And they're going to go to war against Jesus, who's got flooding rains, fire and brimstone, that, that's Sodom and Gomorrah stuff. You know, he's got uh, uh, great, oh, oh, hailstones. These aren't just like, these aren't just like little hailstones. These are great hailstones. In fact, it says in, in Revelation 16, the seventh bowl, it says that he'll rain down on them hailstones the size of a talent. Now, a talent is 100 pounds. Where do you hide from 100-pound hailstones? You don't. If you throw a bowling ball off the Empire State Building, it'll go through a car. That's 12 pounds. You throw a 100-pound hailstone, right, off, it, it, it goes to any basement you got. I mean, you can't get that that... It's, it's just, I mean, it's just, in fact, uh, it was, um, was it Job? It's Job uh, 38, I think around verse 22. I could be off on, on the location. But he says, it's the Lord says to Job. Because remember, Job was asking God all these different questions. And, and then God all, all of a sudden shows up and starts asking Job a bunch of questions. And Job can't answer any of the questions. But one of the things that God says, he goes, have you seen the treasury of hail that I have reserved for the day of the great battle and war? And the Lord did this in, in Joshua chapter 10 when, the, when Joshua was going out to war against the five kings. 
And it says that as he went out to make war, it says on that day, the Lord began to rain down hailstones upon them, and more people died by the hailstones that day than they did by the sword. And the Lord's going to do it again at the end of the age. Verse 3, Zechariah 14.3, says, And the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, or, or, yeah, fight against the nations as he does in the day of the battle, and on that day his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, which shall face uh, Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall, float, uh, shall move towards the north, half of it towards the south. He says, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for my mountain valley shall reach to a zale. That's another land. He says, yes, you shall flee as you did uh, as you did from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord will come, and all the saints with you, or some translations say with him. Thus the Lord will come, and all the saints are coming. Are you a saint here? You're coming with him. This, you're going to be here for this. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, for the lights will diminish. This is, man, this is... God is such a theatrical, I mean, this is, you guys ever been to a, a play that right before the last scene, all the lights go out and there's the dark right before the last, the last, you know, the last, whatever it is, the, I'm not a drama guy. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is the great day of God Almighty. He's not going to be outdone. He's turning all the lights off right before the last scene. It says, it should be one day, which is known to the Lord. He says, neither day nor night, but at evening time, it shall happen that it will be light. And what he's basically saying, he goes, he says, that there, he, goes, he goes, when the lights go out, he goes, all the natural lights are going to go out of the daytime and the nighttime. He goes, but at that evening time period, he goes, when it's dark, when it's going dark, he says, all of a sudden, it'll go back light. And that light he's probably talking about is probably the light from the Lord. In fact, uh, uh, Isaiah 24, and, and the, in this very context, it says on that day that the sun and moon will hide in shame because of the face of him who's reigning on Mount Zion. I mean, we're talking about the brilliance that's going to come off the Son of Man. It's not that the Son of Moon actually goes away. It just means that in comparison, it's like it's hiding in shame. <clears throat> and it says, In that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the, and the Lord shall be king over the whole earth. So he's giving like a broad what's going to take place after this battle. There's this, I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically there's other verses that talk about these, this water bursting forth from the Temple Mount, and half of it goes towards the Western Sea, which is towards the Mediterranean, half towards the Eastern Sea, which eventually makes it down into the Dead Sea, and it causes all the waters of the earth to come back to life. And it says, in both summer and winter it shall occur, in other words, it, it, in other words it's going to perpetually go, that the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And in that day it will be said that the Lord is one, and His name one. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place. In other words, he's talking about literal geographical changes take place at the second coming of Christ. That the, the mountains, of the, the, all the, the high places begin to go down and Jerusalem begins to ascend up. This is part of what Isaiah says, that the nations says, uh, will go up to the mountain of the Lord and it will be established above all the mountains of the earth. It says... Uh, shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from the Benjamin gate, this is all in Jerusalem, to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, from the tower of Hanal to the king's winepress. And the people uh, shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. 
And this shall be the plague. Now, here's, we're going back. Now he's going to take us right back to what happened. How did, how did this, the second coming procession take place of the battle? Said, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. It says, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Yeah, you think? Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Now, this is, I mean, Habakkuk talked about it. He said that the Lord's, he said he'll shine forth his hand, and it says, and then fever and plague will follow behind it. And this is part of the plague. Literally, it's hitting people on the battlefield, and they begin to melt is the idea. They, it's like when he says their eyes, their faces begin to melt. Often, them begin to dissolve. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie um, uh, Indiana Jones, the very first one? All five of you. All right. Listen, the very first Indiana Jones, the one that was made back way back when uh, I was a kid. I still don't know what, it was 80s, I think. And uh, if you remember the scene where at the very end where they, uh, they, took, they, they opened the, the Ark of the Covenant, and all the people were standing around, all of a sudden, everybody started melting. Their eyes, if you saw their eyes melt, and it's a very lovely scene. Uh, and so, well, where do they get? That's actually Steven Spielberg, who's, a, who's, who's Jewish, and he actually got that from Zechariah 14. When they, the glory of God was coming out, and the people was all their, all their eyes and sockets and all that was melting. And this is from this very passage. It'll probably look a little different than that on that in the real day, but... Um, this is what the Lord will do. He'll run, he'll go forth down the mountain into the nations, stretch forth his hand, and people begin to disintegrate. At the same time, the flooding rains begin to take place. At the same time, the great hailstones begin to drop. At the same time, there literally is the issue of the sword going to war with all the nations and all the angels and all the saints. And he's going he's gonna to destroy all the nations. And then we see in Revelation, he'll then capture the Antichrist and the false prophet and cast them into the lake of fire. Let's see what else I want to go to here. Uh, let's go down, let's skip down to verse 16. Verse 16. So this is after the battle is over. So chapter four, Zechariah 14, verse 16. It says something. There it is. It says, uh, and it shall come to pass uh, that whoever is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Huh? So we're like, do what? Okay, what do you say? He said, so there's this great battle at the end of the age, and then there's something that happens afterwards. All the nations that are left from the nations that came to war against Jerusalem, they're going to go up every year to worship Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, first of all, this, this has never happened before. This is not something that's historic, okay? This is, that's never happened. The very, so what is, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the, the, the nations of the militaries that go to war against Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon, all of a sudden afterwards are now going to worship God at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that the peoples from the nations that were a part of that last military ca campaign. In other words, for example, I don't, I'm not saying this, but let's say, let's say that China, I'm just throwing a nation out there, that say they go to war with, you know, against Jesus at the end of the age. They send their militaries. Those militaries, Revelation 19 is very clear, when, when the Lord returns, he will execute all those militaries. But there will still be peoples of those nations that were not a part of the military. Many of them will be those that will actually come up year to year to worship the king in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? This is, what we, this is part of what we call the millennial reign of Christ. Because when the Lord returns, he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. 
And there's the t- issue of time, and there's going to be years and gen- the, the months. It's going to continue on. This is what the Bible says, that, that we will then be raised to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. The resurrected saints will then be given governmental positions of authority over cities, locations, infrastructures for the rebuilding of cities, roads, educations. I mean, everything, arts, all the things you can think of, the saints are going to be instructing the nations, the remaining nations on the earth. And those nations are going to be coming up year by year, and they're going to come to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're going to worship the Lord, Jesus. This is, this is where, I, I'm say, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because it's not just like we're just going to die and just go to heaven forever and that's it. Like there's literally going to be stuff that's going to be taking place. When the Lord returns, we're coming back with him to set up camp here. And we're going to actually rebuild, build a kingdom for him on the earth. And you're, and, and you're going to be given positions of, of authority to do things with him and for him in the age to come in a resurrected body. And for that thousand years, you're going to be instructing the nations. I mean, this is, this is, there's so many verses about this in the scripture, and this is exactly, this is exactly what all the early church taught. Man, the first, if you guys ever get a chance to read some of these guys like Irenaeus or a guy named Lactanius, he actually talks very much, very much about this, how that, that God would, that, that not all the nations would be extinguished. They would all, all be, all be uh, uh, destroyed, but many of them would be left as a victory for God, and the, the nations, those who were, who, were, who were raised from the dead, would preside over them as judges in the ages to come. This is a part of what Paul talks about. He says, don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? Now, that word judge doesn't necessarily mean, like, this, it's not just talking about, like, you're sitting in a big courtroom, and you got a gavel, and you're, you know, you know, guilty, not guilty. That's not what he means by judges. Judges, in the same way that the judges, in the book of Judges, judge. They were given leadership over the nations. Does that make sense? They were given a governmental decrees. This is what Revelation 20 says, where he says that, 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 uh, that in the first resurrection, it says that, that uh, and I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Right? And he says, and, and he goes on, he says, he says, he says uh, blessed is he, he who's a part of this first resurrection. Anyway. Are you guys following me, or am I, just, am I talking to myself? Amen. All right, good. Back to the hellstones. Okay. <clears throat> this is where this is going, and we're going we're gonna to be with the Lord during this time. Oh, I know, I was going to say this. So, so we talk about the Lord landing. But I want you guys to get a picture of this. When the Lord comes, he's not just, ah, it's it, like time, I, this is, I guess what I'm trying to go to, is the, like the, the glory and the majesty. In fact, let me just throw this out. He's coming on the glory clouds. Now, when we talked about the, we, I think we hit on this just a couple weeks ago, but we're talking about the glory clouds of heaven. We're, this isn't this isn't like the big poofy white clouds, you know what I'm saying, the big like marshmallow, you know, whatever. This is the, the Ezekiel 1 clouds. You guys ever read Ezekiel 1? Of course not. But it, you start reading, you're like, I'm going to Proverbs. Um, it's the whole wheels within the wheels passage, you know what I'm talking about? And But what happened there in Ezekiel 1, right, is that Ezekiel, he's by the river Chibar, and he's hanging out, and he looks to the north, and he sees a big cloud rolling his way. It's actually rolling towards him. But it isn't a normal cloud. It's a fire-engulfing fire cloud. So it's, he says fire and billowing fire. So he's explosion, fire, and the fire goes, and blows back out again. And he sees it rolling towards him, and he looks inside the cloud, and he, when he looks in there, he sees four angels, he calls them cherubim, and they're standing in a square. So if, if you can imagine, it's, it's an angel, angel dude. And then there's another angel guy, and then another angel guy, and another angel guy. And they're standing there, and each of them, it says that they have four faces. The face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. And it says that their feet were like calves' feet. 
In other words, like blocks. Like there's no front to it. And he says, he says, and everywhere they, they went, he says, they always went straight ahead. They did not turn as they go. In other words, he says, every direction that they traveled in was always forward because they have four faces. In other words, here comes the man, here comes the man, here comes the man. Here comes the eagle, here comes the eagle, here comes the eagle. Here comes the lion, here comes the lion, here comes the lion. Here comes the ox, here comes the ox, here comes the ox. They don't have to turn as they go because every way is forward to them. And they're in a, in a, in a, uh, in a square, and they have four wings, and they were holding up their, their two of them they, they flew with, and with two of them they actually held up, raised up high. And they had next to them, they had a wheel. And the Bible, he calls it a wheel within a wheel. Now, don't get weirded out. I see so many charismatics, like, we, like we, we're like, a wheel within a wheel. I see them try to draw it in some sort of weird looking, like, like doo 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 doo. All, if you just read the, the Greek, it, I mean, the Hebrew, it's just, it just means a wheel intersecting a wheel. I mean, in other words, wheel and another wheel. And it, they intersect. So it's like a, it's like a, it's like a ball. So, in other words, because they, because they only travel in 90 degree angles, in other words, every way is forward, there's a wheel that you can go this way or you can go this way. Does that make sense? And he, and he sees, so, so think about it. You got four angels in a square, and each of them have a giant wheel next to it. What does that look like to you? I mean, yeah, but I mean, think about it. Four posts and four wheels in a square. It looks like a vehicle, doesn't it? It looks like a this is exactly what this is actually what the scholars talk about. It's actually a, it's actually a chariot. Now, look at this. It says the two they hold their wings above them, and they're covered in this giant cloud, this fiery cloud. And it says they're moving, and they're not just moving; they're moving fast. It says they're moving at the speed of light. It says their appearance was to and fro as though appearance of the flash of lightning. It's 186,000 miles per second. That's that's pretty quick. And they're, and they're coming, and it says, it, says, it says above them, it says they're holding, in other words, their hands in the air, and they're holding something. What are they holding? It says directly above them, he sees, uh, it says a platform. It says it's a sapphire platform. Well, the Bible talks about this. It says that in Revelation, it calls it the sapphire sea. Sea of glass, whatever you want, however you want to call it. They're holding this thing up. And then Ezekiel says, then I looked above the sapphire sea, and I saw a throne, and one who sat on it that looked like the Son of Man. Who's that guy? Jesus. What is it that he's, Jesus, he's looking, he looks inside the cloud that's coming towards him, and he sees an angel carrying sapphire sea throne chariot. This is why the children of Israel carried the Ark of the Covenant. This is exactly the picture that when Moses went up into the, into the mountain, he saw, he said, build it like after the pattern you saw. And they were to carry it, have the, the priests were to carry it on poles, and it represented the throne of God. Because he saw the, the seraphim, they were actually, actually holding up the throne of God. You guys have read Daniel 7, even in the, it says about the Father, the Ancient of Days. And it says that I saw his, his throne and issued forth a fiery stream. And it says its wheels were of burning fire. And even, in other words, even the Father has, thro has, has a throne chariot. Which makes sense because he's coming down to the earth too after the thousand-year reign. But the, but, but the second coming, that's the thing Jesus is coming back on. And the, actually, he says in, in the Psalms, it says he's coming and he's riding upon the cherubs. That's what's appearing in the sky. That's what we're going to see him marching across the heavens. Are. That's when you and I are raptured up to meet him in the air in the clouds. That's the clouds we're going to. So this, this chariot thing is going to be carried by the angels, and, and the Lord Jesus is thrown, is seated right here, and then the saints are going to be caught up to the sea of glass before, before him, and we're going to be taken to the battle of Armageddon. 
And so if Jesus is here, I'll probably be sitting right here, I'm sure. You guys are probably somewhere back there hanging on for dear life. Just don't fall off. But it's all about reward, so just do what you can. But this is what he's coming back on. And he's going to land on the earth. The, the, let me say it this way. The sea of glass, I believe, is going to land on the earth. Some of you are like, that's impossible. Well, so, so, so <laughs> I, actually, I, actually think, I actually think if it does land, it lands on that Mount Sinai region. Someone's like, that's impossible. How could that happen? Well, it already did one other time. In the book of Exodus, it actually says, I think it's in chapter 24, um, it actually says that Moses, when he went up into the Mount Sinai, into the cloud, when he came down fiery cloud, the fiery thunderstorm that was taking place on the, over the region, it says he walked up into the cloud, and it says that he went up, and the Lord says, go down and get your 70 elders. So he goes down, he gets the 70 elders, and so they all go into the fire cloud, and when they get there, it says they all stood on the sapphire sea, and then they ate a meal. Think about that. They went up there and got the heavenly hamburger. They... they on the staff with angel food right there when they were on Mount Sinai. So this is what the Lord's coming back on. And then eventually he'll, he'll, he'll mount his horse. Uh, my opinion is, because behold, heaven opens and the white horse comes out. I think, he takes, I think it takes place when he gets to the Mount of Olives and he goes to make war. And the one reason I would say that is because you guys remember at the first coming of Christ when, um, when he, was at, he went to the Mount of Olives and he gets to the Mount of Olives and he's about to make a trip to the temple. But he's at the Mount of Olives. He looks at his disciples and says, go to this one city. He goes, and when you get there, you're going to find a donkey. He goes, tell the guy the master has need of it. And he'll say, you know, it's like a Jedi move. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, the master has need of it. And so he says, go there, tell him, and you're going to get the donkey. Bring the donkey back. And then what happened? Jesus gets on the donkey, and he marches from the Mount of Olives to the temple mount, where he cleanses the temple. Quick question. The, for the two of us that have been to Jerusalem, you, you know where the Mount of Olives is, right? You know where the temple mount is? <clears throat> How far do you think it is, roughly away? Could you... Right, where the, where the current temple mount is, where they think it is. It's, 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 I mean, a couple hundred yards. Right? Do you need... It took longer to go get the donkey than it did for them to make the, the, the trek from the Mount of Olives to the temple. Like that was, there was no logical reason for that. Hey, let's work, literally, it'd be like, it'd be like, um, like the offices way over there. Me saying to you, going, listen, I need you to go to Snellville and get a donkey for me and bring it back here because I got to go all the way to the offices. There's no reason for that. Why did he do that? It was completely symbolic. That the first time he came riding lowly on a donkey, he mounts at the, at the, at the Mount of Olives and he goes to the Temple Mount and he cleanses the temple. It's a picture of the second coming. He's going to mount a war horse. He's going to go down and slay the nations. He's going to go into the temple and tear down the abominations of desolation and cleanse the temple and set up the, the millennial reign of Christ. Ah, amen. All right. I went five minutes over. All right. So let's do some Q&A. Here's how we're going to do the Q&A though. We're going to do it a little differently. Um, we haven't passed the mic around. This time I think we're just going to set up a mic and and uh, maybe, yeah, put it a little bit further down, down there. Yeah. And uh, if you have a question, just we're just going to like kind of do like a little lineup thing, okay? And just have you come down and ask the question on the microphone. And Stephen, I'm going to have Stephen come up here as well with me. And, uh, you know, if you have a question, just go ahead, go ahead and stand, come on down here. Um, as you're hearing questions, you may get a question. And listen, there's not a, there's not a bad question. So just, you know, this, it, your question, even if you know the answer, it might be helpful for the rest of us that are here. 
to be able to process it and talk about it. And of course, if we don't know the answer, we'll just tell you we don't know or we'll make something up. So, um, awesome. Cool. Testing, testing. Okay, so I have a question. Let's say that yeah, and if, if you have another question, like, go ahead and get in line now. If you've got a question, don't wait until the other question's done. That way it'll be efficient. With the final battle yeah. with all the saints and um, Jesus and us and everything, and we're fighting against the devil and the, yeah. and the other cities and stuff like that, so obviously we can't die, and Jesus can't die, and there's the hail and everything, and we're fighting. And basically you said in the scripture it says, like, that battle is basically futile <laughs> to, the other, yeah. to the opposite. Are, are there no casualties at all on our side? We're just literally victorious. And we, li we literally just kill them all. Right. And that's it. Well, the, you know, the Bible says that in the resurrection, you know, there will be no more death. There will be no more crying or no more tears, right? So if you can't die again, well, that, it, that tells you, you know, it says that, you know, the, the souls have been made perfect, Revelation 12 says, in the resurrection. So you can't die again. That's the idea. You know, after, after the resurrection, you've been received a glorified body that's no longer corruptible is what it says you know you put on incorruptibility yeah so yeah it's 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 a it's a hundred now we're protecting obviously probably the the jewish captives that have been taken out they're they are they've obviously missed the rapture and those kind of things you know but yeah we but the oh, so they're are, still they're still mortal they're still mortal. yeah but we're okay. obviously not we're, we're gonna be them. yeah I, we'll, we'll probably do a pretty good job i'd imagine with uh, and this is the last question with that being a you know the fact that we can't die and everything like that does it ever say anywhere how long that battle will be the battle? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, not, 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 but, well, okay, so, so there's. Two seconds. <laughs> there, there's, the, so day 1260. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to go into this. There's, a, there's, on day 1260, the second coming uh, appearing of the Lord takes place. Daniel 12 verse 11 says, from the time of the setting up of the abomination of desolation, there shall be 1290 days. Blessed is he who makes it to day 1335. And so he says that there's a, there's a, 1290 day period mm -hmm. that the abomination of desolation so just follow me it's a it's a wicked statue idol that antichrist sets up he sets it up on the day of the abomination of desolation mm -hmm. on day 1260 jesus returns mm -hmm. but he says that statue will be set up until day 1290 that means there's a 30-day period from the time Jesus appears until the time the statue's taken place. If Jesus came back on, on the first day and just went, evil be gone, he blows everything up, he, why would he hang out in Jerusalem an extra month with the abomination of desolation? He wouldn't, right? So it demands that there's a time, take, uh, time gap of, of events taking place between his appearing and the final culmination of the battle when the, when the, the idol's taken down. This is where we get all these other prophetic passages about the procession in the sky, the procession of the land, the bowls of wrath in, in, in the book of Revelation, and those events taking place during that procession until the eventual destruction so of the universe. So we Antichrist. know he's going to land, but we know that, that all the armies have to come together, and it takes some time to do that. Right. But we don't know exactly. Yeah, it's but like, that, that's probably even starting days. a little bit before then. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. You can adjust it if you need. <laughs> Okay. I was wondering if you could just give like a little bullet list of um, the different events in the end times in order. Like, for example, um, tribulation, et cetera, et cetera, second coming, sure. abomination, well, all that. Well, no, that's a great question. So we're going to be doing the seminar in two weeks. That's okay. actually what I'm going to be. I'm actually going to oh, go, okay, I'm nice. actually going to go through the timeline. Like, like this event, then this event, then this event, and I'm going to draw it out and I'm going to give everybody packet and all that so okay so it's pretty detailed so that's actually what we're going to do, do then okay do you have a second question you want to ask her um oh yeah sure um so during this whole battle 
does that mean that there are no Christian people left? So this is post Jesus comes back. Yes. Okay, so they're all gone at that point. So they're not all gone, they're with Jesus. So remember when Jesus appears in the air, the dead in Christ rise first, so their bodies reconstituted, their souls are coming with Jesus, so their soul and spirit meets their body in the sky, right? And they're there with Jesus. And then after the dead in Christ rise, then those who are left, believers who are left, go up with them, right? And get their new immortal body, right? Imperishable, incorruptible body, glorified body. And then we all come back to earth together. So we're with Jesus at that point. So yes, we're there, but we're in glorified bodies. Okay. And so that remnant that's there, so they're Jewish, right? You said there's like Jewish people. There is a Jewish remnant, and then there is a remnant from the other nations as well. Okay, so does is there anything talked about of the Jewish people recognizing Jesus? Yes. I didn't get to go into it, but if you, earlier in Zechariah 12 through 13, it says that when they see him, they'll see the one whom they pierced. Then they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only child. Mm. And they will begin to cry, cry out. In other words, this, this idea that they've missed a Messiah for all this time. And it says at that time, the Lord will call them his people and they will call him their God. And, so, and that's where I, 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 I'm sorry, Romans... Uh, 11 talks about it says that um, uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel he says but uh, he says until the fullness of Gentiles comes in and then all Israel shall be saved he says as it is written the deliverer shall come out of Zion and he'll turn away their you know their, their sins from the people and all that and so this time when he comes back there's this this moment where the Israel that's left on the earth will call upon him um, and, and, and Zechariah 13 says it'll be one-third of the nation that will oh, actually come cool. to the Lord, yeah. And then Daniel 9, where we get the whole timeline of events, the 70 weeks, if you're familiar with that, 70 groups of seven years, in that last seven years, the, the things that happen includes uh, Israel, the, the Jewish people, putting an end to transgression and accepting the, the Messiah. So yeah, all of that's, that's right. actually in the timeline. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. And if, if, if your questions, if, if you have questions just related to the end times, it doesn't have to all be about Armageddon. So that this is, we're just filling, filling in end times questions you guys have. So uh, my question is, during the millennial, will we recognize people that we knew in our lifetime? Like, yes. if I see my wife, will I know who she is? I, I love this question. So, so in Corinthians, Paul, he actually says, he said, what is my hope? What is my crown of rejoicing? Is it not either, even you, brethren, with me at the coming of the Lord? He was talking to the church that he had, he had birthed and discipled. And he said, one of my greatest joys, he goes, that you guys that I've loved and I've been with, he goes, labored with, you'll be with me at his appearing. In other words, which tells you there's, the, there's a transfer of, 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 um, of, of relation, relational equity that takes place in the age to come. And so, like, I'm just like, yeah, I'm like, nobody's excited about going to some New Jerusalem city and you're 1,500 miles away from the clear, person you know, you know, or like, I get there and you know, you're not a dude and I don't know who you are anymore. You know what I mean? Like, 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 but there's the relationships do carry over into the ages to come. Moses will still be Moses. Elijah will still be Elijah. Adam, in other words, everyone will still be them in the age to come, glorified and resurrected. Even after the millennium and the ascent to heaven? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're still you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. My question kind of goes back to the whole thing with Israel and the remnant that remains in Jerusalem. Um, so it talks about in Matthew 23, how when Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem, saying, um, you will not see my face until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so yeah. that's until they recognize him as their Messiah. So yeah. then I guess my question is just with the timing of everything. So do they say that first and then Jesus comes to, to rescue them? Or how does that whole thing work? 
you go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, uh, so, so one thing that, that, that that's saying, they'll actually, so it's saying city of Jerusalem, you will not see me. In other words, I'm not walking in again. Jesus is saying, I'm not walking in again until this happens. Uh -huh. And so uh, my belief is that um, after uh, the, the rapture happens and believers have gone up, I think that the Jews are starting to get it. They've seen this guy appear in the sky with blazing fire and all the angels and all the saints. And I believe that one of the, the main things that the saints are going to be doing during the end times is ministering to Jewish people and saying, he's coming, he's coming, get ready, get ready. And some will get saved, right? Some of those will get saved. And they'll, if they get saved, they actually go up, right? It doesn't matter what background you're from. If, if you're a believer, when Jesus returns, you go up. But others will not have, but then that will be a cathartic moment for the entire nation. And they'll be like, Oh, now we know who this is. And so I believe that there will be Jews in Jerusalem after the rapture has occurred that will be saying, oh, this was him. Come back, come back. Right. And then that's what, what gives him entrance into Jerusalem. There's also, I would say, you know, the, the, you know we talk about the issue, uh, the, the promises of a great end-time revival. And we, that's oftentimes used. And people point to Acts chapter 2, in the last day says, God, I pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams, right? Well, that, he, says, he said, I want to tell you what the prophet Joel said. That actually comes from the book of Joel. If you actually read it in context, Joel chapter 2, he says, uh, you know, uh, you know men, uh, young women, uh, says, uh, I'll show blood, fire, vapor, smoke, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. No, no, before he says, he said, it'll happen before the coming, before the coming and great and awesome day of the Lord. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The very next verse, for in Jerusalem and in Mount Zion, there shall be great salvation. The actual context, the original context is actually about a great revival in Israel. Now, we know that that bleeds over into the Gentiles for sure. Romans 11 tells us, okay? But there's this, there, but it has to happen before the coming of the Lord. And so, so I think the answer is yes, there is going to be a great revival in Jerusalem prior to the second coming of Christ. I think as, as he's pointing out, as Zacharias says, when they see the one they pierced, okay, in other words, the appearing of the sky, they begin to mourn then. It won't be till potentially a couple weeks, months later, that the Lord actually then begins to enter into Jerusalem when many of them are crying out. Great question, though. Hey, um, I'm curious if you could explain um, what the whole earthquake means. Like, who's flooded, who's, who is, like, leaving the battlefield from the earthquake because I'm confused like who would who's that is that the Jewish people or no um it's okay so you got like uh think Lord of the Rings you got Sauron Sauron's armies okay Sauron's armies okay they're all gathered right and then you got uh Gandalf remember that scene where he comes down the mountain you know what I'm saying and he's gonna go out to war against okay if you saw the movie, that's the picture, okay? It's like Jesus coming down the mountain, right? And all the hordes and the militaries are there in front of him. Uh -huh. And he's going to go into war to take back that, that whatever it was, the White Castle, whatever. He's coming back to take Jerusalem. And while, when he's coming down the mountain, he's calling down the different plagues upon the wicked nations that are gathered around Jerusalem. Okay, so who are the people that are being attacked? Is it just... Okay, let me, let me, let me just... This might help. So the, the kings of the earth gather to a staging area of Megiddo, okay, the plain of Megiddo. But what they're actually doing is they've set up camp in Jerusalem. They've got Jews captive in Jerusalem. So they're actually defending Jerusalem. They're not fighting against it. 
Okay, that's their home turf at the moment because they know Jesus wants to be there. The devil knows, like, everything falls apart as soon as Jesus gets on that throne on the planet. That's bad, bad. We can't let him get there. So they set up defensively around Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming back probably from the area of Egypt, making that trek up from Basra, Edom, and then Mount of Olives going in. The mountain splits, and the Jews flee out, but all these armies are there, and that's the one whose faces are, are melting. So everything help? I just said for that whole hour, was something that we, we could have saved a lot of time. <laughs> okay. Is that the question? Did that get the yeah, question? Yeah, the Jews, that's, that's what I was... Okay. So it's all the nations are gathered, yeah. basically defending Jerusalem against Jesus. Okay. That was nice. Uh-oh, there were some good questions here last time. Right. Here we go. How many batters, battles will there be? How angry will God be? So, oh, great. Uh, so how many battles? Well, there's, uh, let's see here. There are, a couple, well, there's a couple different battles. There, there's, the, uh, okay, as far as just pure, like, like single battle, let's talk about, we only have this last one let's talk about, but now there's definitely warfare that's taking place before then. It says in Revelation 6, it says that one of the, 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 the rider on the uh, red horse, so it's a, like a, this, this event takes place, it says it will take peace from the earth that men might uh, go to war against one another. So war will be taking place all throughout this time. But then there's this one singular great battle that takes place. Um, there's a little something that happens with Babylon as well when it gets destroyed. But there's a, as far as the great war, the, the, we have the picture of the one great big war, like the, the, the World War III, if you want to call it, you know, it takes place um, there at the very end. And so, and how angry, very angry. So when the, the, you know, the judgment events are the seals, the trumpets and the bowls, right? And during, so the bowls are the last set of judgment events. And it says with them, the wrath of God is complete. So it's the fullness of the wrath of God being pulled out, poured out and wrath means anger. So he's very angry at sin and, and basically, um, and so this is something, this, this question actually opens up a good door to, to talk about this. Like some of you, maybe your brain's melting and you're like, wow, this is a completely Jesus, different Jesus than I thought, you know, when I've been reading my Bible, what happened to the whole God doesn't do judgment anymore? That was the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. Well, guess what? God never changes. He never changes. People say the God of judgment in the Old Testament, God of love in the New Testament. He was a God of love in the Old Testament. Very much the love of God is all throughout the Old Testament. And he's a God of judgment in the New Testament as well. And um, so, so we can't forget that, that, that he really is a God of judgment. But what he's judging is sin and everything. He's, his name is Jealous, right? He's jealous. Jealousy is his name. But what he's jealous about, it's not this ugly human form of jealousy, it's the, the pure form of jealousy that says, I love you and I will have your whole heart. I want us to have the best relationship we can possibly have. And anything that takes your eyes off of me is going to destroy that relationship. So I'm going to destroy it. It's as if you have cancer in your finger, right? You would hate the cancer in your finger that says it's going to spread to your whole body. And you would say, if I need to, I will chop off my finger because I hate that cancer so much, and I'm not okay with that cancer spreading to my whole body, that's what the cancer of sin does to the body of Christ. And he says, I'm going to deal with it. So he's very angry with it. Good question. Will Jesus 
drink grape juice again? <laughs> yeah, I, look, I love this question. This is awesome. Yes. All right. So, so uh, uh, yes. So, it's got, it's got so it's wine though. So, it's good. It's different kind of grape juice. But um, so he actually said this to his disciples. He says um, uh, when he's giving the Last Supper, or he says, "I will not uh, drink of the fruit of the vine or eat of the the lamb." He goes again until I do so with you in the kingdom of God. And, uh, and then they go on, they're like, well, what are we going to have? Because when the, in the regeneration, you guys are going to sit with me on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he gives them this promise about this reign that's going to come. That's what's going to happen in the kingdom. But he says, he says, I'm going to eat of the, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. This is interesting. So there was a, there was this uh, old saint, uh, it was, he, was a, he was a disciple of John. Poly, well, Polycarp, but then Polycarp discipled a guy named Irenaeus, and Irenaeus talked about this very, this very, this very idea. He said the very fact that Jesus told his disciples that they will one day again eat of the fruit of the vine demands that Jesus was was saying to them that there's going to be a restored earth. In other words, that God is not just going to come back and blow up this planet because they're going to again eat of the fruit of the vine of the earth. In other words, that God has to then restore the creation on this planet, which also demands that they that have passed away before then have to then therefore be raised from the dead and reign on this earth. So good. And so the very promise that you would eat of the fruit of the vine and again, eat, uh, eat of the lamb, which I, I'm so glad we get to eat lamb again. It's <laughs> meat. We're not all going to be vegetarians in the age to come. <laughs> Glory to God. Um, Isaiah 25 says we're going to have the fatty meats at the great supper. It's like, come on. And, but yeah, we're going to, so he is, he's going to, he's going to, we're going to be eating the grape juice in the age of God. And a super cool thing about that is that when Jewish people back in that day would, would uh, get betrothed when they would say they were going to get married. So there's a period of time before they get married. So when they got betrothed, when they said yes to one another, they would drink a cup of wine and they wouldn't drink it again until the wedding. And so this is a, a promise of the wedding yeah. to, to come when he's making that promise. So it's such a cool question. Which we think that the wedding and the Feast of Tabernacles is, is one right. and the Feast same that we talked about earlier. What will the devil look like on the resurrection? What would the devil look like in the resurrection, you said? At the end of the age. At the end of the age. Well, I mean, whatever, probably whatever he looks like right now. Um, I, would, I would say this real quick, that, that kind of the popular picture of the devil is that he's ruling over hell. Yeah. But that is, that's not the case in any way, shape, or form. And so the ultimate destination of the devil in that time period is that he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So he won't have any authority. He won't have any power. In fact, everybody's going to look at him in disdain and, and go, oh, my goodness, this, this future that, that's in store for him is terrible. He, he doesn't have any authority. He doesn't have any power. He's not ruling over it. There's not some party in the lake of fire. Right. He's, he's in the lake of fire, and he will not have access to, to any of the people that are, that are still in glorified bodies. Right. So we won't even see him other than knowing that he's yeah. there in, in the lake of fire, but he won't have access to us, it, and he won't have any authority. There's two stages to him. At the second coming of Christ, Revelation 20 says he's then first cast into what they call the abyss or the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And he's shut up and he's sealed so that he can deceive the nations no more. Then he's released for a short period. I want to go, we'll go in more detail about why at the seminar. But a short period he's released to deceive the nations one last time. I'm talking about the natural body people. It's not you and I as resurrected believers. And he stages one more effort for a battle. 
And then from there, the Lord calls him on fire and destroys him and then cast him into the lake of fire. And that's his final destination. Um, so I just have uh, like two questions, but my first question is kind of two in one. Um, I want to know, you said earlier that uh, we are going to be able to recognize our loved ones who are dead in Christ. Yes. Uh, and we are, they are going to resurrect first, and then we are also uh, living, uh, going to be where they are as well. But I just want to know whether that includes those that died uh, at a young age, like children or infants. Well, you, answer, you have some good thoughts on this. Oh, do I? Yeah. Yeah, my, my good thoughts are that, that we're not actually told exactly what form people take in the resurrection. You know, if the, if the person's born as a baby, do they remain a, a baby? Probably not. Um, but will we recognize them? I believe that we'll fully recognize. And actually, it says we'll fully know even as we're fully known. And I, I believe that talks about each other as well. And, and there's a, a thought that's really cool, which is that the, the person that you know the most deeply in this current age, you will know the absolute stranger more deeply than you know your, your spouse in this age even, the, the level of knowing of one another. And so it's not like who you are disappears. You actually get more fully known in that age, and you more fully know others. But as far as ex the exact form that they're in, as far as what age will you be, we're not told that. There's, I mean, there's just things that we're not told. Right. Yeah, I mean, the Bible says when we see him, we'll be like him, you know? So I don't know if that means we're all 33, you know, kind of thing, you know, <laughs> looking. But, um, you know, as far as what age. But there's, there are verses that seem to talk about children. You know, there's the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you know, there's, there's a one, uh, uh, what am I trying to say, uh, way people interpret where David said, when his son passed away, he says, I, I'll go to him, but he won't come to me. You know, and one of the ways that's viewed is talking about in the resurrection is kind of the idea that he'll be there. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of thoughts. But, yeah, I do believe children are, are there with us, and, you know, and, and, and you know, the ages come, you know. But at what age, I don't know. Uh, and uh, uh, my second question is kind of like, uh, so I'm a multilingual, I love languages. And uh, it says there in the Bible in Genesis that uh, before uh, God uh, destroyed the Tower of Babel, uh, everyone on earth was speaking one language. Yeah. So I just want to know exactly when we are up there in the crowds with Jesus, are we all going to be speaking that same language that everyone was speaking before God uh, uh, dis dispersed everybody into different languages? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I don't 100% know. There's a couple of verses. So in, in uh, Zephaniah, it talks about the Lord restoring the uh, pure language. Um, and so I don't know if that's what he's talking about there. Um, the, the, so let me just throw this thought out. Okay, uh, as far as what language are we going to speak? Are we all speaking like an ancient Hebrew or whatever? I don't, I, don't, I don't quite know that. But I will say there will still be national distinctions in the age to come. Uh, he says that in Revelation 7, he says, says uh, uh, people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people standing before the throne of God. So in other words, there's still the issue of, of nations. In the millennial reign, we see the nations bringing the, king, the, king, the glory and the honor of the nations into the, into the, uh, the, the New Jerusalem. Um, uh, and so there's still national distinctions. So in other words, your, your culture and your, your, your heritages and all those kind of things are still very much prominent in the age to come. So, so, so we see in like Ezekiel 47, 48, the eternal inheritance given to, say, the nations, okay, or specifically to Israel. They actually have an apportion of land for the Jewish resurrected saints, okay? It will be a portion, a certain lot within the, the Nile to the Euphrates River. 
the nations are still given positions, which t tells us there's still national distinctions that God still honors even in the age to come. Um, but as far as, you know, whether or not, I'm sure in our glorified resurrection state, we can, we can all communicate, you know, I don't, but I don't know what that means as far as like, you know, what specific dialect or nation, you know, national. Yeah, I would say real clearly there's not a language barrier um, because you see all the saints singing bef before from every tribe, language, nation, and people, but John knows what they're all saying. Right, so he's able to understand what they're saying, whether that's a supernatural thing where you just get to keep speaking your own language that you're used to and the other people you know, understand right. you, or if it's a common language, we're not, we're not told that, but we do know we can understand. And that there, is, there are these still distinctions, like you are still you, your background is still your background. And that's to me one of the most important things for us to, to comprehend because it motivates our heart in a new way if, if, if we're not disconnected from this idea that there's continuity from this age into the ages to come. It's not like reset, everybody's, you're just a completely different person than you used to be. There's no relationship anymore to the processes of life. Like in the millennium, the natural processes of life continue for those who are in natural bodies. So we're in glorified bodies interacting with people on the planet in natural bodies, and those people in natural bodies have natural processes going on. So the city of Atlanta will still be a ge geographic location. Now it's going to look different because there's been this reshaping and remodeling, but there's still Atlanta. It's still here. There still will be people living here, and it's possible that part of your reward is might be that you have been given authority over a certain region. Maybe you get Lawrenceville. You know, maybe you get Buford, where you, you're interacting with those people. So when we disconnect everything and make it just like, oh, there's a completely other thing with, with nothing from my past mattering anymore, we're not motivated anymore because we can't connect with it because we're actually made for that interaction with this planet. Like God made the planet and the planet's going to be here and we're going to interact with the planet forever. And, and so that idea of we just turn into angels floating on clouds like, the devil loves that idea because nobody can connect with it. Right. Like, I'm just going to be bored floating on a cloud. No, you're going to be interacting with this planet once again. Amen. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, if it is okay, I, I just have one extra question. Maybe this is a bonus. Um, is that okay? okay? All right. Well, yeah, go ahead. The yeah. line's not too long behind you, so <laughs> you're probably right. All right. Um, so you talked about millennial years, uh, and uh, uh, just want to kind of like, I just want your help to kind of like clearly understand what that means because last time I was studying the end time, it kind of felt like there were three different sets of years uh, that are going to be coming uh, and each one are going to be different and like different things are going to be happening uh, in, each, in each set. Uh, but I just want to know really like millennial years, uh, what, can that be, what can that mean? What do you mean real specifically by three sets of years? Like you're, you were seeing three sets of a thousand years or like, you were seeing three? Yeah, like what a, three thousand, sets you... a thousand years. And I think there is like seven years of distractions and something else, like three different sets of millennia years. I, I, I'm just trying to. Are you familiar with that? No, thought? I'm not. But I, so, so, um, okay. So, so, so there's, there's just kind of back. So, so one of the early church beliefs was this idea is called, they called it millennial Sabbath idea was that the earth would continue, uh, for 6,000 years under the curse. And then the 7,000th year it would be liberated and you would be a thousand year reign. And, and, and so this, this idea is that the Lord returns. Okay. And establishes a thousand years kingdom. Revelation 20 points out whether you believe what the early church fathers believed or not, Revelation 20 is very clear. No matter when it happens, when the Lord returns, Revelation 19, 
It's followed by Revelation 20, Satan's cast in the bottomless pit, and then there's a thousand-year reign, okay? So there's only one spoken of eschatological thousand-year reign that's talking about. It's just, it just happens right after the second coming of Christ, okay? Just before that is the second coming of Christ, which is preceded by the Great Tribulation, which some people talk about a seven-year period or a three-and-a-half-year period of trouble. Okay. So, so it makes sense. you got three-and-a-half-year to seven-year period of trouble, followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ, followed by a short season where Satan's led out and deceives the nations. Okay, We're not told how long it is. It's called a short season. So shorter than a thousand years is the idea. And he's led out and he does some bad stuff. And then God judges him. And then we have uh, the great white throne judgment. And then from that point on, everyone that's alive or left is glorified and resurrected. And everyone who's bad and didn't do well or didn't serve Jesus is now in the lake of fire. Got it. Okay. Got so it. that's really, the, that's really the kind of the timeline of events that takes okay. place. All right. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you for taking my question. Um, I actually wanted to ask about uh, the tree of life. When is that coming back or is it here? Or uh, I just wanted to ask that question about the tree of life. Uh, uh, yeah, it's good yeah, yeah. So the uh, <clears throat> uh, Revelation uh, 2 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant him to, I will grant him, future tense, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise, of, it's a paradise, that word paradise, this is in Revelation is Greek, right? And it's the exact word that's used for Eden in the Old Testament. So in other words, when you, t when you talk about the Garden of Eden, it literally means paradise. And so it's the re restoration of all things. God is bringing back to the earth the, the Garden of Eden is the idea, uh, the restoring back to this original state on this planet. And so um, <clears throat> what it appears to be, in other words, that the, the, uh, for the body to live, eternally is the idea for the the physical the physical body to live it would have to eat of the tree of life which is what he told him originally he said he said they need to be removed unless they would eat of it and live forever but we see that that tree so so remember jesus on the cross he's with the thief he says today you'll be with me in paradise and then he says he goes into the heart of the earth right he dies he goes in three days and three nights in the belly, the belly of the earth well then he's raised from the dead and he sends back to the right hand of the father well uh paul in Corinthians says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to paradise. So this idea is that paradise is now ascended, this idea with, and is with the Lord. And that's why in Revelation 21, we see that the tree of life is in the new Jerusalem now. But that city is coming down to the earth in Revelation 21. And so it seems to be that in the resurrection, the way, part of the way it works in the resurrection is your resurrected body is then you then take partake of the tree of life and it actually gives you know, the, the issue of eternal life. It's not that the Lord could have done it anyway, but that's the way he's chosen to do it. Now, I don't know if that means you eat it one time and you're good to go. I hope that's the way it is, or if you've got to show up, you know, every so often. Sounds like it's one, a one-time deal, though. So this is just because you mentioned, obviously, the charismatic humor in the beginning, So and obviously this church is for that, because this is only literally my first day being here, but I'm connected ah, to Night Watch. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, so... I don't know how familiar you are. Obviously, I'm assuming you guys know who Sid Roth is. Yeah. Yes. I mean, obviously, I'm in the Bible Belt. But um, I actually met with Dean Braxton when he came to the Northwest. And he talks about, you know, he was dead for an hour, 45 minutes. And he got all these crazy insights of Revelation. And it was like confirming some things. But I was just curious, do you, are you guys familiar with his story tied into any of this? Just out of curiosity. 
it just I'm came not, kept Stephen is well versed in it. No, yeah. no, no, okay. I, 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 anyways, I, it, it, it just some of the things you brought up. It's like interesting. I, I wonder if they've read this or not. But anyways, I just, I just throw it out there as a reference because there's some really solid points. Dean that he Brax. Makes. Dean Braxton. Yeah, his. Braxton. He was, and he was medically, clinically di diagnosed as being dead for an hour and forty-five minutes in a hospital in Seattle. But yeah, his wife actually kept praying, and he actually came back of his wife's faith, which was crazy. Cool. And he has the like CD with the book that confirms that his doctor <laughs> says and verifies he was actually gone. But anyways, this it came to mind while we were you know discussing all these questions. I'm like, wait, maybe I should bring that up. So yeah. anyways, yeah. it is asking. So. Yeah, not familiar. Yeah, yeah. No, I it's a good reference. Yeah, thanks. I will do two more questions, then we'll we'll close it now. So as far as like technology and advancements, how is that going to look uh, in the millennial? Is it, are we just going to have a clean sheet or are we going to pick up where we uh, left off? Well, so this is really cool. So um, uh, Isaiah 60 and, uh, well, it, it follows very similar to the, to the pattern of King Sol Solomon. So when Solomon came and, and King, talks about when he came, when he became King, it says that they, you know, he, he established and he basically takes the land from the Nile to the Euphrates River. It's kind of like a precursor of what God actually promised Abraham. And then he sets up his kingdom, and it was the most glorious time in Israel. It says all the nations and all the kings of the nations were coming to King Solomon to learn from him. And it was interesting was he wasn't just talking to them about the ways of God. He was talking about, like, birds and fish and arts and, and sowing and seeds. He was talking even about natural infrastructure stuff that was, that was important to them in that day. And he was teaching them this wisdom. And, you know, Jesus, who's the one greater than Solomon, is, is, is actually that same language plays out in Isaiah 60 under the kingdom reign where the nations are coming to Jerusalem. And Isaiah uh, 2 talks about that, the, the, that he'll teach the nations his ways. You know, one of the ways of the Lord, he's teaching them about, you know, the, the governments of the earth, the structure of the earth. He's going to be able to teach us about technologies that we like the way, the things that were embedded in the earth when he created the earth that we have no clue about. You know, what I mean? he's like, you guys have been doing this fossil fuel thing, fighting over it and climbing and all this stuff. You know, whatever it is you're going through. He goes, if you just take this plug, you stick it in that tree, you got more power than you ever. You know, and we're going to be like, what? You know what I mean? Like he's going to be like, you just take this water, you spit at it, and you put it here. You know, and then boom. You know what I mean? And 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 in other words, he's going to have the, the the most creative ideas on on technology. That, but use it for under godly purposes that, in a way that's not never been used uh, to this day. Because technology is, it can be a real gift, but it also can be yeah. very much used for destruction. So, yeah. Again, we appreciate you guys doing this. And I can't help but realize all of the time and years you spent studying and reading books. So we appreciate that because it makes it a lot faster for guys like me. <laughs> I told Billy last week I've never studied it, and he kind of laughed. But that's the truth, in my opinion. These things are so complicated. To really say you've studied the things of the end means you haven't just studied everything in Scripture, but you've got to go to somebody else, mm -hmm. like reading books and things. And so that leads into my question. Are there maybe at least two books or maybe two authors that you could recommend that you like, you like their stuff, you like what they're saying? But I also have this caveat. I don't want to, you know, up until now, I've always thought maybe the rapture and this economy were separate. I'm totally on board that it can and is most probably the same thing. But when I read a book, I don't want to hear just one viewpoint. I want the author to go, now here's the different viewpoints out there. Here's why they think this, but here's what I think the truth is. Mm -hmm. If there's some books or authors out there, if you could recommend that before I hit memo to record it. And well, if not, and if not, maybe. I don't have a book like that. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, there, not, are, maybe, there, are, <laughs> there are good books out there. So, so there's not, I don't, okay, what's this? There's a, there's a book um, 
called The Four Views of the Rapture and another book called The Four Views of the Millennium. There's two books there that, that give each a, a decent, a decent uh, version of kind of each, each view from, and, it, and it's, it's divided into four sections, each one of them, so that it's spoken from a person who actually believes each of those positions. Does that make sense? So you get at least somewhat of a fair uh, breakdown and not, not straw men arguments. Um, and so, but as far as like, you know, picking one or two books or one or two guys, it, I, there are people I could tell you that I like, but at the same time, I would tell you things that I don't like about each one of those guys. Right. Does that make sense? Sure. So that's a little bit scary thing because you go, you go, I like this guy. Or how about this guy? And then you guys go read it, and next thing you know, you're a communist. And um, <laughs> and we mentioned this last time, but Mike Bickle's website is a great place to go. It's not a book, but it it's got so many just volumes and volumes of teaching notes. And then you can also listen to the audio, or you can watch videos along with the teaching notes. Say so his uh, name again, Mike. Mike Bickle. Bickle. B-I-C-K-L-E. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, gr- that's a great resource where you, where you can uh, just dive in really deep. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so there's, there's several authors I could, I, could, I could tell you about that, I, that I've read that I, I really like. Um, you know, but like if you're trying to find something that just gives you all the different views out there, something like I said, the, the, the four views would be, would be helpful. Um, you know, I don't know of anybody who, does, who just wrote a book who's completely unbiased towards one opinion and who's just completely just trying to disseminate information. Okay. And I apologize that this question has been sure, asked or one more, if I haven't been listening well, if this has already been answered, but, um, so we'll be coming and reigning with him. So we're, you know, eternal spirits. We'll finally have our immortal body. So we're going to be in existence to the entire millennium plus beyond, but all the people that are going to be born during the millennium, they're normal humans that will, that will live and die. Yeah. And is there a biblical context for what happens to their spirit at death so yeah so the the bible doesn't give a ton of information specifically about that but there's some logical deductions that would take place so we clearly have the issue of nations that exist and that's all through the scriptures the nations that are left the the fact that we're reigning over nations in the age to come you know rule rod of iron all that um and so isaiah 65 talks about says these people that are left on the earth says they'll live much longer lives than they normally live today. It says the, the person who dies at a hundred, so he does die, death is still possible, but the person that dies at a hundred years old will have been thought a little child. When you think about that, you're like, man, do you remember what happened to Bobby? Now what happened? He died. You're like, how old was he? He's a hundred. Poor kid. That's how that's going to be. Now, that. So then the question is, what happens? Well, we know now in this age, right? So the beatitude for the body is the presence of the Lord, the person that, that dies in the Lord before they receive their, their glorified body, before they stand before the judgment, I'll say it that way, their body is, ascends, right? No, not is, their body. I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry, the soul ascends and is present with the Lord, right? You see the souls are the altar, that kind of thing. Well, that same reality is very much in play for those that died during the millennium. So they say, say the guy dies at 100 years, first, you know, the first 100 years in the millennium, he dies. His soul would ascend to the New Jerusalem, to the Sea of Glass or whatever it is, you know, and is there awaiting the judgment, okay? Because there's a second judgment that takes place at the end of the millennium. It's called the, the, the Great White Throne Judgment. And so in there it says, he says, I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before uh, uh, the one who sat upon the, on, on the, the throne. And it says, uh, and, and that's where we see this, it, the issue of the great white throne judgment takes place. And it says, and all those whose names were not found in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. The very fact that you're having a judgment 
and we're seeing a whole group going into the lake of fire, it tells you there's got to be another group that's also not going to the lake of fire, or else what's the point of we're looking up all their names? Imagine you got six billion people, or, or you know, several billion people out there, and there's probably more than that by then, 10 billion people. They're all damned. They're all going to the lake of fire. You know what I'm saying? And we're doing like, next. <laughs> not, not in here. Next. Right? It, it tells you there's another group that probably is in there. Does that make sense? Which would be those people from the millennium that are, and this is why I think one of the reasons why in Revelation 21, it says that God's going to dry up the sea. So it says that, that, that and the, and the, behold, I see the new heavens, new earth. And, the, and the, he says, and the former earth has passed away, heavens are passed away, and there was no more sea. All right? One of the reasons for that is for the expansion of the land inheritances, because there's going to be so many people that have been born in the millennium. In other words, because at the second coming, the Lord issues out the apportions of land to the resurrected saints, but in the millennium, there's a whole another couple billion, several billion, 10, 15, 20 billion, who know, because people are going to be living longer under a curse-free earth. That means procreation without pain, right? Completely fruitful without sin, sickness, disease. They're going to be having lots of babies is the idea, all right? And they're going to be giving birth, and there's going to be lots of people going to be born. Those people have to be brought into the inheritance, and that's one of the reasons why God dries up the seas to actually give further inheritance to the saints that are actually are being born through the millennium. And then there's at the end of the millennium, so you've got people on the earth at the end of the millennium, and some of them are believers, but then some of them have turned their hearts away from the Lord. And, and when Satan is released from the abyss, right at the end of the thousand years, they rebel against Jesus, even though Jesus has been present, living on the planet, ruling and reigning the planet. It's shocking to us, but this is the, the evil that's bound up in the heart of men. And men go, yeah, we'd rather be with Satan on his team than with Jesus on his team. And again, they surround Jerusalem, this time going against Jesus, and then fire falls from heaven and consumes them. So they're killed there, but then, again, they're dead, but they have to go before the great white throne for judgment. The end. Amen.